Hi everybody, I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. and welcome to Prophecy Today. This is a program that we do on a weekly basis. My brother and I, my brother Rick, and if you've been listening to our program, well, actually, if you've been listening over the last 20 years, you would have heard my father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, do this program. And my brother and I are continuing, and we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. I know just about every week I start out that way, but I want to establish that right up front so that as you are listening to our program, you know that you're being educated, that you're being informed about uh, world events that are taking place and how they fit in to Bible prophecy. Well, Rick, we've got a, a pretty informative program today, don't we? Absolutely. We have several great guests. And like you said, we look at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And there are so many different things taking place right now around the world that do look to be setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. We've got our usual guest, Ken Timmerman, and he'll talk about things taking place in Iran and the Middle East and China and here in the United States. And then, of course, Dave Dolan with our Middle East news update. And, you know, stay tuned for that because he had some really uh, important information about internal security, things that are taking place inside of Israel with the Palestinians that are very important to our listeners. And then, of course, we've got uh, Bob, Colonel Bob McGinnis, not a regular guest, but an excellent guest, regular Fox News contributor, former uh, or still works at the Pentagon, actually. We have Itamar Marcus of the Palestinian Media Watch. We haven't had him on in a while, and he's had some great information. And finally, we've got Menno Kalashir, a dear friend of our families and a man who started a church with our father in 1991. That church is still going strong, and Menno's going to give us an update on that. Well, we're looking forward to today's program, and uh, time is slipping away, so let's get right into our first uh, interview with Ken Timmerman. And we're here with our geopolitical affairs expert, Ken Timmerman. And Ken, I want to start off on what I believe is a very important topic of discussion for this week, especially in light of the Afghanistan withdrawal that happened recently and the, the, the debacle that that was. And now we're looking at a complete withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq. What can you tell us about that situation? Well, this is potentially a, a, a huge, huge disaster in the making that could, uh, in fact, by comparison, make Afghanistan look like uh, child's play. Uh, the Biden administration, I now call them B-Team Biden, has committed to the Iraqi government that we will pull out all U.S. troops, about 2,500 2, troops remaining in Iraq in three air bases primarily, uh, all of those troops by the end of this year, December 31st, 2021. I can tell you right now, what is going to happen. Uh, it's not a mystery. And if uh, General Mi Lee uh, tells you that uh, he couldn't have foreseen the disaster once it unfolds in front of our faces in the first week of January 2022, the guy is not just a liar, he's also stupid. Um, the Iranians are going to empower and embolden their local militias, uh, their local militias, which are Shiite militias, primarily operating in the Kurdish areas and the Christian areas in the north, but also elsewhere in the country, will rain down, uh, will install a new reign of terror on Iraq's Christian populations, uh, attack Christians in local communities, force more Christians to flee. They will also uh, spread, attack, spread their, their reign of terror into Sunni areas in an effort to completely crush whatever Sunni militias might be remaining, 
And essentially, Iraq will become the, uh, another Lebanon. They will become another Iranian-controlled puppet state in the Middle East to enforce Iran's ultimate goal of defeating Israel in a final war. Well, and, and that's a great observation, and it seems like with America pulling out of the Middle East, Iran will become the dominant player. Another article that we had talked about was uh, they are flexing their military muscle against the bordering nation of Azerbaijan, mainly for the sin of having somewhat warm relationships with Israel. Uh, well, again, another um, uh, story that has not gotten any attention in the uh, national media, the corporate media here in the United States. The Iranians uh, this past week held snap military exercises along the border of Azerbaijan. That's to the northwest and northwest corner of Iran. Uh, and accusing the Azeri government, which is a Muslim government, okay? Azerbaijan is a predominantly Shiite Muslim country, but accusing Azerbaijan's leaders of being secret Israeli agents. A, uh, and, and the Iranians, in holding these uh, um, these military exercises, <laughs> said they will not, this is a quote, we will not tolerate the presence of the Zionist regime near our borders. And by that they were referring to the Azri government in Baku. Look, this is important because these exercises were not held by the regular army, whose mission, remember, is to defend Iran's national borders. These exercises were held by the Revolutionary Guards, who do not have any territorial mission. Their mission under the Islamic Republic Constitution is to spread jihadi Islam around the world to uh, promote the Muslim caliphate, to spread the Islamic revolution, uh, Iranian style, around the world. So they have an um, expeditionary mission, just as they have in uh, Lebanon, just as they have in Iraq and in Syria, uh, this is the Revolutionary Guards on the border with Azerbaijan. It caught the Azeri president, Ilham Aliyev. It caught him completely by surprise. Uh, he put out a statement saying, you know, what, you know, basically, what in the world is going on? We don't understand what the Iranians are doing. Why? Of course, they have a right to hold military exercises in their own territory, inside their own territory. But why would they hold it right uh, within spinning distance of our border, because that's where they were. So this is a, also a very, very serious development. Uh, I see the Iranian regime becoming increasingly aggressive in the months to come because they see the Biden administration, BT Biden, is refusing to stand up to them, uh, refusing to um, uh, stand up to their aggression, uh, and, in fact, not even... In working very hard to uh, enforce the U.S. sanctions in play. There's, a, there's another story this, this week, which is pretty, pretty astonishing to me, uh, which was to see that the Biden team, B-team Biden, has abandoned all of their efforts to reduce Iran's oil sales. Remember, Iranian oil sales under the Trump administration were down to under uh, about 400,000 barrels a day, 300,000 barrels a day. China today is purchasing around 600,000 barrels a day. And B-Team Biden, instead of putting restrictions on Iran's oil sales, instead of interdicting some of those um, tankers on the high seas, as the, as the Trump people had done, the Trump administration had done, B-Team Biden is now 
appealing to Beijing to reduce their oil exports, exports uh, imports, excuse me, from Iran. So, so get this straight. Uh, the B-Team Biden, which is maintaining um, uh, tariffs on communist China, is actually taking a far more hostile um, approach towards communist China than anybody would have expected. I'll give them credit for that. They have nothing to offer the Chinese, but they want China's help in reducing Iran's oil exports. This is just foreign policy and national security run by amateurs. Again, that's why I call them B-Team Biden. Well, then that leads me to my final question. If uh, we are basically ceding dominance of the Middle East to Iran, and they're going to basically control the Middle East by their proxies that will wage war, where does this leave our relationship with Israel, where does this really, you know, we, uh, U.S. has continually strong, uh, been a good friend of Israel, but can they count on us anymore to protect them, especially in this instance against Iran? Well, remember, uh, what does U.S. protection amount to? We are not physically, materially, militarily protecting Israel. The state of Israel is quite capable, and Israeli leaders will tell you that, of protecting themselves. But what we do is very, very important. The U.S. Israel's strategic relationship is important for Israel because, number one, we actually give them, and get this, this is, might surprise some of our, our listeners here, but we actually give them strategic cover, a nuclear umbrella. Yes, Israel has nuclear weapons, but they don't want to use them. Uh, and our nuclear capabilities actually put Iran on notice not to do anything stupid. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it, it serves there as a deterrent to the Iranian regime to launch a massive attack. Uh, second of all, we supply Israel with weapons, weapon technology, F-35 uh, uh, stealth fighters today, um, with um, money for the Iron Dome, even though, remember, the squad was trying to take that money out of the defense budget. And, and mainline Democrats like Chris Van Hollen of um, Maryland, who I ran against in 2012, systematically voted against funding for the Iron Dome, all the while hypocritically saying that they support Israel. Um, so we give them money for their weapon systems. We give them a strategic cover. We do not militarily defend them. But Israel's leaders are worried, and they are worried when they hear people like Kamala Harris, the vice president of B-Team Biden, telling a student when she's uh, asked a question about how the U.S. can support Israel when they're engaging in ethnic genocide, ethnic genocide. And she comes back and responds to the students and says, oh, well, you know, I, I, I hear you. Your point of view should not be suppressed. Mm. You know, we should be listening to your point of view. When Israeli leaders hear that kind of statement coming from the vice president of the United States, they're worried. And they're right to be worried. They're right to be worried about America's commitment, about this administration's commitment to Israel and its security. I know to our listeners and to me as well, the current administration's decisions in the Middle East, especially pertaining to Israel, are very concerning. Ken, thank you so much for staying on top of the news and reporting back to us, and we look forward to doing this again. Thank you, Rick. It is indeed very concerning, and this is one of the few places where uh, our listeners can actually hear about it. God bless, Rick. See you next week. Ken Timmerman talking about world leaders and the decisions that they make. You know, Revelation 17, 17 says that God will use and put in the hearts of these leaders to accomplish his will. Well, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back here on Prophecy Today weekend.
Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. This weekend, I'm going to be in Oxford, Alabama at Trinity Baptist Church. I'm going to be there Sunday, all day Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I would love for you to come over. I'll be teaching Bible prophecy, basically the basics of Bible prophecy. It's my desire to help people to understand where we are so that they might understand the times in which they are living. Well, we go to our good friend, Dave Dolan. Uh, Dave has been uh, a journalist in the Middle East for over 30 years, 35 years to be exact. And we talked to Dave about internal politics, internal security in Israel, and some uh, late-breaking news coming out of Iran. Dave, we'll get right into it. Lots of things taking place in Israel and in Israeli politics and in Israeli news nowadays. Um, let's start with the first one, uh, Lapid visiting Bahrain. What can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, it was the uh, first time that the king of Bahrain, Ahmed al-Khalifa, met with an Israeli official of any kind. And, of course, Yair Lapid is the foreign minister of Israel and due to rotate to become the prime minister in two years. And many in Israel say he's really the prime minister behind the scenes right now, that Naftali Bennett is just the front man, and he's really calling all the shots. So he has a lot of weight, and uh, he traveled to Bahrain and met with the king. Before that, he met with the crown prince, Salman al-Khalifa, who's the son of the king. 
of course, the crown prince, and he's also prime minister. So um, this was an important uh, move, just showing that uh, these Arab countries that made peace with Israel formally over the last little over a year ago, over the last year, the others uh, are really willing to, you know, show that publicly. They're willing to meet with Israeli leaders in their own palaces, in their own countries. Uh, of course, while Lapid was in, Bahraini opened up an Israeli embassy, officiated at the opening. The Bahrainians announced that they will open an uh, embassy in Tel Aviv before the end of the year. So it shows that this is a real peace process, that it's going to endure even though it was uh, negotiated mostly under the former prime minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. But it seems like it's carrying on, and the Israelis are very glad for that. Um, Lapid made a statement. He said that this is a model of coexistence and cooperation between cultures and between faiths. So, you know, he's dealing with a moderate uh, Arab country, of course, both have the same enemy, Iran. And by the way, the Iranians very much condemned this meeting. They said, quote, it was a stain on the Islamic world that Lapid would be allowed into their country and they would meet with them. So there you go. Well, we go from the prime minister to be to the current prime minister. And recently, the Palestinian chairman, Mahmoud Abbas, addressed the General Assembly at the UN. And in that address he called Jerusalem the capital of the Palestinian state to be. And when the current prime minister addressed the same UN General Assembly, he did not refute that and did not call for Jerusalem to remain Israel's capital. And some people have speculated that that could be because of the coalition he had to put together to get into place. What can you tell us about that? Well, interesting news coming out about Abbas and the UN. Uh, there's news reports that uh, he asked, his office asked, to meet with President Biden while he was in the States, either at the White House or at the U.N., and that the Biden White House said, we don't have any time for that. That's the first time that Abbas has not met with an American leader when he was in the States, and as a result, he didn't go of that, uh, you know, postponement or that uh, announcement that there wouldn't be a meeting. He decided to send a taped message instead of going to New York himself. But in that taped message, like you said, he claimed that Jerusalem is the Palestinian capital. And again, like you said, the Prime Minister Bennett did not refute that. And instead, in fact, he talked a lot about the conflict he's having inside of Israel with his health ministry over COVID rules. And that was widely condemned in Israel. You know, why are you discussing an internal political problem in Israel at the U.N.? And there was a lot of comparisons between Bennett and Netanyahu, who, of course, is a great orator and always made the headlines. Bennett gave a very, what some said was a very boring speech. And as you said, it didn't uh, refute uh, Abbas's uh, claim on Jerusalem. And again, he leads an eight-party coalition that includes one Arab party that supports the Islamic uh, Brotherhood movement, Muslim Brotherhood movement, and uh, two others that are very left-wing, labor and merits. So yes, they don't necessarily agree with his position. His personal position on Jerusalem is, of course, that it's Israel's capital and it always will be, and that's his small party's position. Lapid somewhere in the middle of that, and then there's the left. So it just shows he's setting up kind of a fake 
government in a sense that if it really has to take any decisions on any real issues, it's going to find it very difficult to do so because of this wide right-left split that uh, is right in the middle of this uh, new government. Well, that new government does need to be conscientious of their internal security. And there are some reports coming out of the area that Hamas uh, has terrorist cells and there was a crackdown on on one specific terrorist cell in that area. Can you talk to us a little bit about Israel's internal security situation? Well, Rick, they're saying that uh, the Israelis are saying that the PA security forces seem to have melted away in recent weeks. They're not doing much at all to quell uh, Hamas attacks or to even keep order in their cities. We talked last week about the leaders of Hebron saying they don't even want them there anymore. They'll do their own patrols, etc. So the security situation inside the territories has deteriorated significantly in recent weeks. And as a result, the Israelis have stepped up their actions uh, in, uh, well, really in all parts, There's been increased Palestinian rioting uh, the last few weeks. We had three Palestinians shot dead this week, uh, one in the territories, one in Gaza, and one, uh, a woman, a Palestinian woman coming off of prayers on the Temple Mount who pulled out a knife and tried to attack Israeli soldiers. She was shot and killed. And um, the uh, Israelis lost three drone aircraft over the last week also, one in South Lebanon, Hezbollah, said it shot it down, and two over Judea and Samaria, one just south of the town of Nablus, and the Palestinians said that they had brought that down. The Israelis said it crashed due to technical difficulties, and that another um, drone also crashed due to the same thing. But both of them were dropping tear gas on Palestinian rioters, Uh, The riots have been getting stronger, and the Israelis have been going after the Hamas cells. So it's a very hot situation. It hasn't made much international news yet, but uh, it's definitely boiling. And uh, we could see basically it turn into a full-scale uprising, but it's getting close to that now. And it seems to be that Hamas is feeling so emboldened by its war in May that it believes it won. And the opinion polls show that its popularity has definitely increased significantly amongst the Palestinians. So it seems like the PA is just stepping back and letting the radicals move forward. And that's not a good situation, of course, for Israel. Another story of interest, Dave, that uh, I'd like to ask you about is that there seems to have been a fire in Iran that might have been an act of sabotage on what Iran says is a research and development facility and what Israel says is a missile factory. Can you tell us about that? Yes, there was a fire last Monday uh, west of Tehran, and as you say, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards uh, claimed control of the building but said it was a research center. An Israeli satellite company took pictures of before and after of the facility, showed a lot of damage, and they said that it uh, contained Iranian missiles that it was a storage facility for Iranian ballistic missiles. Uh, That hasn't been confirmed by anybody else, but it seems likely, and if so, it probably was some sort of an Israeli-sponsored, at least, uh, assault on that uh, building, maybe internal uh, people doing it, but uh, we won't know that for sure. But this shadow war between Israel and Iran definitely continues on the sea, on the ground, in Lebanon, in Syria, 
and uh, it's not going to stop anytime soon. My final question, you mentioned earlier that it's a divided government, and it's a government that's made up of very different ideological persuasions. Do they have the capacity to maintain security, internal security in Israel? Well, I think there's pretty much a consensus on that. Uh, the labor and merits parties are left-wing, but they are Zionist parties. They support Israel as a Jewish state, and they support the continuation of the country and the state. The one sole Arab party may be not so strongly, but yeah, the security forces are still very much in place and very strong and very ready to act uh, on all levels, and that even has to do with the Iranian uh, nuclear threat. They're pretty unified when it comes to that, but very divided when it comes to a two-state solution and these sorts of uh, political issues that are on the table. David, thank you for all you do to keep our listeners informed. Stay safe, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. You're welcome, Rick. God bless. David Dolan, our Middle East journalist with the Middle East News Update. We're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, Lieutenant Colonel Bob McGinnis and Itamar Marcus, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with my brother Rick. You know, this program was established to have a worldview, not only to just have a worldview, and and that's how, you know, basically most people have a worldview by what they watch on TV, their news items, uh, where they get their news from, where they get their information from. And I'm so very thankful that uh, we've worked a lot in the Mideast. We've worked with missionaries in establishing schools in Eastern Europe. So we have a pretty good worldview, but it's very important that we have a biblical worldview so that you can understand why the world is acting as it is. Well, a longtime friend of the program, a longtime friend of my father, he's been on many videos with us, Lieutenant Colonel. Is it Lieutenant Colonel or is it just Colonel? Well, formally it's Lieutenant Colonel, but you can call me Bob. Lieutenant Colonel Bob McGinnis, a great friend of the family. Uh, I've actually had the privilege of taking his daughter to Israel. I took Bob and his daughter to Israel. But Bob's been around the world. He's a graduate of West Point. His day job is at the Pentagon. Great to have you with us today, Bob. Well, it's my pleasure. Good to be with you, Jimmy. So over the years that you've been with us, you have been, uh, and and my father was a China watcher. There's an article that came out, the United States, China, and Iran triangle between a rock and a hard place. The latest move 
with the United States trying to enforce any type of uh, uh, parameters on Iran is being affected by Iran's relationship with China. What do you see here, and is is that something that we should be concerned about? Oh, yes, we definitely should be concerned. Earlier in the spring, uh, Wang Li, who is the foreign minister of China, was in Tehran, and they signed with the Ayatollah and his representatives a new strategic alliance agreement. Uh, it was not just financial, but it was more strategic uh, and obviously they don't publish everything, but uh, it suggested that uh, there was a military relationship there as well. So uh, that, of course, got the attention of the people in Riyadh, uh, people obviously in uh, Jerusalem, uh, anybody in the region, understanding that the Chinese had always had a presence in, throughout the Persian Gulf. And all you have to do is go to Bahrain, UAE, Kuwait, uh, Saudi, uh, you always see te- delegations of Chinese mm-hmm. uh, because of the oil. And, of course, they were buying virtually all the oil that the Iranians <laughs> could pump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the Chinese relationship is growing uh, exponentially uh, in the region uh, because they understand not only because of the energy needs of uh, the vast 1.4 billion person Chinese population, but they also... Uh, are very hegemonic, uh, as I point out uh, in a 2018 book, Alliance of Evil, that I've no doubt, and it's it, this becomes more obvious every day, that we have been in a Cold War with uh, the Communist Chinese for a number of years, and now on many fronts, uh, that is you know, playing out in spades. Uh, but the reality is the Chinese have set as their goal by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the communist uh, takeover of uh, China, to be the world's number one superpower in terms of military and economic matters. And they are making major advances in in that way. So, yes, in the Middle East, uh, the Chinese have a, a foothold vis-a-vis Iran. Now they have a foothold in Afghanistan because of their relationship, though it's it's a, a tepid relationship at this point. They clearly have a strong relationship with the Pakistanis uh, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, the Indians are very much uh, coming to the U.S. side uh, because they're regional adversaries with, with China. And, and so both militaries are building up. We've even seen bloodshed uh, along the Tibetan border between the Chinese forces, and they're building a host of new airfields at very high elevations out there, and the Indians are responding in kind. So, you know, we're building up to some pretty tenuous times in the coming years. What about Iraq? Because there seems to be a countdown uh, to the United States pulling out totally out of Iraq, and that leaves Iraq open, and Iran's been talking about it, Uh, Saudi Arabia, everybody's kind of clamoring for that that landmass or the country of Iraq, and I would assume it's because of the amount of oil that's there. Uh, do you see China positioning itself there? Well, there's no question about it. Uh, China understands that Iraq has a great potential up and down, you know, from the Euphrates uh, and the Delta and near Kuwait all the way up to Mosul. 
and, but at the same time, don't discount the Turks. The Turks are very, very concerned. Mm-hmm. And Erdogan is hegemonic himself. He's been trying to make himself the caliph uh, of the entire region for some time. And, and that explains the, the tit-for-tat relationship they have with the Russians that are uh, backing uh, Damascus and Assad. Uh, and of course, uh, you also see the Iranians being very unhelpful in there with not only with their proxy uh, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, which is uh, an unstable country at, at at best. So the entire region is uh, tinderbox. And, <laughs> it really uh, is. All the you know, g- given what we have done over the last twenty plus years, uh, mm-hmm. you know, war in Afghanistan, war in Iraq, uh, you know doing all sorts of things in Syria against ISIS, which we helped foist. Uh, All of this and much more is taking place. So even though I think the United States would like to get uh, totally out of the Middle East in terms of military operations, I don't see that near term. Mm. If, if, If you've been listening to those countries that Bob read off, they're all the major players of Bible prophecy in the future. An alignment of nations and, and, and the kings out of the east from Revelation chapter 16 coming into play. It, it, it's so, it's an exciting time, I think, to be alive because in our lifetime, for sure, we will see the rapture of the church. Well, Bob, I want to thank you, first of all, for your service to our country. My dad was in the military. I'm very much supportive of our military, but I'm also very concerned. And I wanted to ask you about this. Overall, what is the readiness of our military? Now, there's been a vaccine mandate. Uh, We have some of the uh, special operations who are the front line. They're wanting to uh, retire, get out as soon as possible. In your opinion, as a military man, uh, you've devoted your life to it. What do you think the overall readiness is and... Uh, what do you think the overall morale of uh, given this pulling out of Afghanistan and a 20-year war that we've been in? Well, morale, especially over the last nine months, Mr. Biden's decisions uh, seem to run contrary to the readiness and the best interest of uh, how a military uh, would function. Uh, however, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, we're reasonably well-funded, um, we, we always are trying to modernize our systems, but we find adversaries on many fronts. Now, of course, we've created new adversaries by turning over to the Taliban, uh, Afghanistan, and allowing that to become a, uh, a cesspool of future terrorists that no doubt, according to General Milley and General McKenzie, will start to target us. Uh, in the not-so-distant future. So that the act creates not only a problem for Central Asia and Middle East, but also uh, for the United States. And, of course, Mr. Biden's uh, open-door policy in the southern border, where we've had so many hundreds of thousands of people who have legally uh, come into this country, mm. uh, many of which, I suspect, uh, are of a questionable background and will perhaps be part of a future internal domestic campaign against our best interest. Those are issues. And at the same time, as I've been writing for many years, uh, the Chinese are are not slowing down. They're they're put their foot full on the gas. They're speeding forward on the development of technologies, a military that is 
uh, bar none, uh, the best in the world. Now, they aren't there quite yet, but their Navy is larger than ours. Their Air Force is growing rapidly. They have a Space Force. They have the largest ground force in the world. Um, they are really putting their shoulder uh, to the plow in terms of accelerating their capabilities. I suspect we're within five years of, if not less, of uh, taking down Taiwan, the break what they in Beijing call the breakaway province of uh, Taiwan. Of course, what we've seen, what they've done to Hong Kong, basically denuded that uh, former uh, democratic-inspired UK colony that is now part and parcel to it. We've seen what they've done in, to the Uyghurs uh, and to other Christians, especially, and churches around that country. So they're acting very communist, which we should not be surprised about, even though you go back to, what, 72, 73, when Henry Kissinger took Richard Nixon over there and you know, talked nice to them and brought them into the, you know, the present world. And as a direct result of that, uh, they're a, a very powerful economically and militarily country today. So they're our primary adversary, but at the same time, the Russians are not being helpful in Eastern Europe along, you know, especially in Ukraine, uh, the, the Baltics. Uh, they are creating all sorts of problems, and, and they're modernizing, albeit a smaller military than they were under the Soviet Union, but they still have uh, the world's largest nuclear force, and they're modernizing their ballistic missiles. So, you know, we see a host of challenges out there. And the U.S. under the Biden administration has shown itself not to be as robust and capable uh, as past presidents. You know, we need a president to be strong and to inspire uh, will and leadership. And unfortunately, I just don't see that in Mr. Biden. I'm not a, I didn't, quite frankly, didn't vote for him. Uh, but given what he is doing these days, uh, I'm very concerned because of the things that I know. Mm. As my father used to say, you're, you're not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But where do you see the United States, uh, say, 10 years down the road? Where do you see America? Well, I'm going to try to be optimistic here, Jimmy. Um, yeah, I would hope that we can reverse some of the very bad decisions, economic decisions, moral decisions of this current administration and begin to reverse things uh, with the uh, installment of what I would hope would be a different Congress beginning in 2022. Uh, I would also hope that the Church of Christ in this country would awaken itself, uh, engage with the culture uh, not only in a loving way, but in a stern way as necessary to point out uh, the waywardness of our great country. We have a, a rich Christian heritage, which we're allowing to be flushed, dismissed uh, in today's culture. We need to be more influential than we have been. And unfortunately, I'm, you know, th that hasn't been what I think needs to be done. You know, I wrote the book Collision Course because of the moral disintegration of our country. And I prescribed in there what I believe needs to be done. And, it, and it's, it, it's not just in the, the local church and the local believer in your neighborhood, but all the way up to the national level. So there are a host of things we ought to do. I, I'm cautiously optimistic that once again, you know, God permitting, we can reverse the current course, which is quite 
you know, frankly, very frustrating. Folks, you could go to Amazon.com, find uh, just type in Colonel McGinnis's name or that phrase, uh, the title of the book, Give Me Liberty, Not Marxism. And I highly suggest that uh, you educate yourselves as to where America is heading uh, should we stay on its present course. Colonel McGinnis, Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, thank you for being a friend of our ministry and for many years of being able to work together with you. Well, my pleasure. Thank you, Jimmy. Lord bless you. Lieutenant Colonel Bob McGinnis. Well, we've got Intermar Marcus standing by. Intermar Marcus of Palestinian Media Watch. As you mentioned, we do have our good friend Itamar Marcus from the Palestinian Media Watch. He keeps us informed on the situation in Israel as it pertains to media that's being put out uh, to the Palestinian people. Our first topic that we'd like to discuss, Mr. Abbas recently spoke at the UN General Assembly, and uh, he had quite a few things that we'd like to unpack from that conversation. Uh, One of them was talking about the creation of Israel as a catastrophe, or they talk about the anniversary of the Nakba. Can you talk about what that means and what that means as far as uh, indoctrination for the Palestinian media? Yes, that's a very important question because one of the principles of the Oslo Accords and the principle of the so-called peace process was that the Palestinian Authority, the PLO, recognized Israel and recognized Israel's right to exist. And by teaching their people that Israel's creation is a catastrophe, every time they use that word, Nakba, and catastrophe, they're telling the people that Israel doesn't have a right to exist, that we, uh, that we were somehow created as a state in sin. Um, they very often say that explicitly. Uh, he won't say that in the UN, but he will use the name Nakba, the word Nakba, and to all Palestinian people who hear that word, he's just reiterating to them that Israel's creation is something that they do not accept because it, it is uh, for them a catastrophe, and therefore Israel has no right to exist. Words certainly do have meaning. Um, I'd like to read a quote from... And by the way, let me just add, words have different meaning to different people. And that's something we've talked about a number of times. The Palestinians use words um, uh, in the international arena that people understand one way, and their people mean them completely differently. And I'll just give you one important example. The Palestinian leadership very often calls for what they call popular uprising. And Americans and people who believe in civil disobedience, that's what they think. They think popular uprising, they think it means civil disobedience. Well, when he says popular uprising, and we have him on, literally on camera, recorded saying this, he's defining go, you know, people going out and stabbing Israelis and murdering them. As long as it's not coming from the Palestinian police, but individuals are murdering, it's called popular uprising. He even once called it popular peaceful uprising. Fourteen Israelis had been killed, and he said, well, that was a popular peaceful uprising. So words are very important, especially when they have different meanings to the international community and different meaning to Palestinians. Well, that's certainly a very important distinction. I'd like to read a quote from the address to the assembly that he gave from Abbas, and and I'd like to get your take on this. He said, and I quote, to those who claim there is no Palestinian partner for peace and that we do not miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I challenge them to demonstrate that we have rejected even once a genuine and serious initiative to achieve peace. What, what do you think about that statement, and what, how does that explain their mindset? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a complete lie, because there have been 
twice when the Israeli government, Israeli prime ministers, offered incredibly generous land, literally land offers to the Palestinian Authority leadership, and they rejected them. Prime Minister Ehud Barak offered to Yasser Arafat in the year 2000, and then a few years ago, Israel Prime Minister Ehud Olmert offered to Mahmoud Abbas. He offered him literally um, 100% of the you know, kilometers of the equivalent of Judea and Samaria, which, uh, which had been, originally had been Jordan, but Israel liberated in the Six-Day War. He offered him everything. Israeli towns would remain, but they would be given comparable land in other places. It was an unbelievable offer. It was far too generous, I'm sure. I don't believe the Israeli population would have accepted it in a, in a, in a referendum if it was brought to a referendum. But the point is, it was incredibly generous. And you know what? Mahmoud Abbas never even answered Mahmoud Abbas has never been interested in peace. He's never been interested in a peace process. Uh, he, he says that he is, but what's happening, and just to get a picture, on the international arena, the European governments and the United States have given them so much money and are promoting their cause so, so, so well that they figure they're going to do better by not having a peace process where they have to compromise, but they're just going to keep doing what they want to do with European money primarily, and then they're going to get everything that they want without having to ever compromise. Well, then let me just continue in that line of thought. And we recently reported on some stories where the European Union had committed billions of dollars to the Palestinian people. And of course, the new administration here in the United States has also released the funds that the previous Trump administration had withheld to the Palestinian people. In the light of that, I'd like you to explain uh, where Abbas said, and I said this over 40 times, if I'm correct, over 40 times on Palestinian media, and he says, even if I'm left with one penny, I'll pay it to the families of the martyrs, to the prisoners, and to the wounded. Yes, the, the Palestinian Authority in 2005 passed what they call the Prisoner's Law, and the Prisoner's Law says that every Palestinian terrorist who ends up in an Israeli prison starts getting a monthly salary from the Palestinian Authority. And the longer they're in prison, the higher the salary gets, meaning murderers who are serving life eventually will have the highest salary. And just to give you a sense how high it is, they eventually will have a salary of 12,000 shekel a month, which is over $4,000 a month, which is four times the average Palestinian salary. So if you're a murderer and go to jail, the Palestinian Authority is going to dish out that kind of money. It, it comes to altogether about $350 million a year. Uh, now, the Europeans, the United States is giving them money, and they're giving away $350 million to terrorists and terrorist families. Now, what does terrorist families mean? It means terrorists, like the terrorists who murdered Taylor Force, for example, his family, because, because this terrorist was murdered in the act, right after he killed Taylor Force, he was shot and killed. He became what's called a, a martyr, and his family gets a lifetime stipend of 1,400 shekel a month. Lifetime stipend. Uh, why? Because he murdered an American in this case, but he murdered as part of fighting against Israel. He also injured a number of Israelis. Now, this is outrageous. Why is the United States interested in funding uh, a Palestinian authority that is interested in funding the families of murderers of Americans? Uh, and the killers of Americans, there are plenty of Palestinian prisoners in jail who murdered American citizens, and they are getting monthly salaries. So it is so hard to understand. There is no logic to it, yet the Europeans and the Americans uh, are anxious to fund the Palestinian Authority. It is an outrage. There is no other 
terrorist-supporting entity in the world that's receiving funding from Western governments, but the Palestinians are. Well, and we talked about it beforehand, and you create a monetary incentive, like you've just explained, but they're also portraying them as heroes in the media, are they not? Absolutely. The Palestinian terrorists are called heroes all the time, and I'll even, not only that, not only are they presented as heroes for adults, um, but they're presented as heroes for children. There are over, uh, I think, 35 by now, Palestinian schools named after terrorists. Uh, I'll give you examples. There are six schools named after female terrorists named Dalal Mugrubi, who's a mass murderer of children. She participated in a bus hijacking, killed, um, they killed 12 children and 25 adults. Altogether, 37 people were killed, and she has six Palestinian schools next to her. Um, Salah Khalaf, who planned the massacre of Israeli Olympic athletes, he has five schools named after him. Abu Jihad, who Palestinians have listed 125 people who he murdered in, in terror attacks that he planned, he has five schools named after. Uh, so, so this is how they glorify and honor terrorists. This is how they tell children that terrorists are their role models. Uh, and every year there are many sporting events named after terrorists as well. So it's not just that they pay the money, they turn them into heroes and role models for children. We appreciate you shedding a light on this subject because we're looking at, at that, and, and our media here sometimes says that there are, uh, they are a partner for peace, but it's hard to imagine that a partner for peace would uh, make that part of their infrastructure, part of the way they uh, educate their children, correct? Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. They, uh, they also, not just naming the schools, but even in the school books themselves, they, they glorify these same... Uh, the same terrorist, in fact, that same terrorist I just mentioned before, Dalal Mugrabi, who, who led the bus hijacking, was killed 37. She's mentioned in a number of school books as a, as a hero, and one of them, in fact, uh, includes her in a list of people who they define as heroes and says everyone wants to be like them. Everyone wants, and then they list her as one of the people you want to be like. So it's clear that they are telling the children, we expect of you to go out and fight and kill and be a martyr. Well, for our final question, Amar, I'd like to ask you, and this is a, a subject that we pay close attention to, is the status quo or what's taking place on the Temple Mount. Now, we do know that there has been an increase in Israelis and Jews going up onto the Temple Mount and, res and for the most part, respectfully praying and visiting the Temple Mount. But I noticed an article from this past week from Palestinian Media Watch where they talk about uh, a Palestinian preacher uh, saying that the Muslims will purify the Temple Mount and liberate the land and the people from the defilement of the criminal infidels. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yes, for, from a Palestinian uh, Islamic perspective, they consider Jews visiting the Temple Mount uh, something that defiles we're not holy like they are, or I don't know exactly which word they would use it, but they say Jews defile. There was even once on Palestinian television where they said, it rains in Jerusalem to purify Jerusalem from the steps of the Jews. And then they showed pictures of, of Jews, of uh, religious Jews walking the streets of Jerusalem. So this is why it rains in Jerusalem, to, to purify the city. Um, it's, it's very, very um, anti-Semitic. They're using Islam to spread anti-Semitism saying that the Temple Mount is, and of course the Temple Mount existed thousands of years before, you know, as a Temple Mount. 
uh, holy to the Jewish people uh, long before long before Islam was even created. And you know, historically, Islam has built mosques in places that are holy to other religions. Recently in Israel, we had a big controversy because the the the, the Muslims in Israel wanted to build a, a mosque in in the center of Nazareth, right next to the most important church in Nazareth. Why? Again, for the same reason, they want to take over you know, put their religious symbols on top of the, the religious symbols that were there uh, before them. And that's what they did with the Temple Mount. They built uh, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and they built the Al-Aqsa Mosque there, and now they're saying that it's only an Islamic place and that the Jews have no holiness there, and they don't see it as holy. So this is part of a pattern with Muslims around the world, and it's certainly a pattern of Palestinians, and even, like I say, Israeli Arabs try to do the same thing in Nazareth. Israel has been making small steps to improve the situation, allowing many, many more Jews to go up to the Temple Mount. Uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that Israel has to allow Jews to go up and pray on the Temple Mount, but there have been so many threats of violence by the Palestinian Authority that the police are literally giving in to these threats. They're submitting, and they're saying, okay, you can go up, but you can't do anything that's going to inflame the, the Palestinians. So uh, what we have here a situation is the Palestinian leadership uh, turns this into an issue of violence. They say, if you do this, we're going to have our people go out, and the Israeli police are interested in quiet, so they give in. It's, it's a very bad precedent. They've been doing it for years. But like I said, the situation is, is, is improving. Uh, we have now many, many thousands of people visiting, Jews visiting every month, Jews and Christians, and hopefully, eventually, the situation will be reversed. I'm sure eventually it will be reversed completely, and we will have uh, full rights to the Temple Mount, as we should have. Well, Itamar, thank you so much for coming on. You're a frequent guest, and you keep our people informed. Well, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you for inviting me. Itamar Marcus of Palestinian Media Watch. We're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, Minno Kalashir, the pastor in Jerusalem, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy D. Young Jr. Thank you for joining us on this weekend's program. This weekend, I'll be in Oxford, Alabama at Trinity Baptist Church all day Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Again, that's Trinity Baptist Church in Oxford, Alabama. It's that time of the week where we take a look at maybe a topic or a subject that affects the body of Christ. And usually we go to Dave James. Dave is feeling under the weather. He has uh, tested positive for COVID, so keep Dave in prayer. Dave's been on our program for the last 10 years. Uh, he did a lot of programs with my father. He's continuing on with uh, myself and my brother Rick and answering questions that uh, really are helping the body of Christ to understand the world in which we live, to handle the tough subjects. But this week, we're going to have a conversation with a very, very good friend of our family, of mine. In fact, Menno Kaloshir, who is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, Jerusalem Assembly, the House of Redemption. Menno, first of all, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Good to hear you again, Jimmy. You know, Menno and I have known each other since, uh, I believe, 1984, 85, when I was working there. Uh, doing some journalistic work, producing a program uh, with the former head of the government press office in Israel, Morty Delinsky. But we were young. We were really kids. I mean, we were 24, 25 years of age. Uh, I, probably you were 23. 
Uh, you and your wife and not were not married at the time. You were dating, but we knew each other back in 1984. That is correct. We <laughs> go together a long time, and believe me, the young family is extension of our family. When I called to ask what about your mom, I said, "How is mom?" <laughs> yes. It is true. That's the situation. So in 1991, my mom and dad moved to Israel three days before the first Gulf War started. And they were there for a couple of weeks, months maybe, before they hooked up with you. And uh, you got together. Y'all were taking uh, or doing a Bible study at the time. Yes. Uh, well, a new home group started in our neighborhood. Um, a friend of us, Bill's family, Randy Cook, Randy and Phyllis Cook and their children, Two and a half, two two years earlier, came to us and said, "Man, it's time to start something in the neighborhood, and we needed a fellowship, a good fellowship." I just came from studies in the state with Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, and uh, we started a home group in the neighborhood, and for two years it was there. But again, it was simple group. Really, that's really that's funny. It was very simple group, truly loving the Lord. But again, what kind of Bible education did I have? Almost nothing, really. Not in a preaching level and so on. I studied electronics. I worked for Intel. Um, I loved the Bible. But still, to be a preacher, there was way more to study. So we were already two years as a Bible study group. And it, it lived as if it was a church. It was we never called it a church, but... Everything we've done was like a church. And then guess what? A bulldozer came to Israel. <laughs> and this bulldozer, bulldozer is your dad. Mm. <laughs> you know, your dad cannot be in a room and people will not know he's in the room. Mm. And here Jimmy comes and Judy, uh, how, in a way, if he called us and we met, and I, I can say that my life, when it comes to preaching and, and, and being a pastor, is decided or can be pointed from the moment I met your dad or your dad met us. Um, he came to the group and joined us. You know, it's as if good kids are teaching mathematics and then Einstein enters into the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Your father is, uh, really, what, what a joy he is for me, for my wife, and really for the body of Christ in Israel, I may say so. He came, and this home group very fast became a church. He, he really, he didn't come with politically correct vocabulary. He basically realized there are good people, there are children of God, and they need some help. And he was not waiting six months on the bench until he speak. And immediately caught us, my wife, and basically taught us and directed us loving way, and, but very stern. Guys, if you walk like a duck, if you smell like a duck, if you speak like a duck, you are a duck. Call it a church and that's it. And I'll teach you how to do things. And I thank God for that. I thank God for that. In May 91, we became a formal church. And your father came in the war in January. So guess, it was pretty fast. Well, tell me, you know, I remember after the services on Saturday, and that's when the body of believers meets because that is the day uh, for to meet in Israel on a Saturday. After the service, uh, or on usually on Sunday afternoon, you would have 
uh, a meal. Uh, the three elders would get together and you would sit around the table. What were some of the things that you talked about? What was so important that helped the church to really to grow and helped you uh, to really to understand the basic principles for running and guiding a church? First of all, let's start with, I was little Timothy, that whatever your father and Dave shared, uh, Dave, uh, I will not say the full name because they're serving in Israel, um, Dave and his wife. It's not uh, um, uh, Dave James, it's someone else. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was little Timothy. Whatever they'll tell me was new to me. And on that meeting, first of all, it's wisdom how to handle a church. Dave was a master of administration. Your father, a preacher in every molecule in his body. Mm. And if I was teaching in the church, your father will sit in the first row as close to me, almost as close as my wife. And he will have a ruler, a Bible, a notepad, and a pen. If your father will mark something in the Bible, I would say, Amen, hallelujah, <laughs> did something well. And if your father will write something on the notepad, I knew that Sunday breakfast meeting will be a baseball bat on my head. And But you know what? He loved me so much, and he loved the flock of God so much, that whatever he thought could be better, he told me. I can say right now, in a lot of humbleness. Our church is solid in expository preaching, in majoring also in eschatology in the right way because of your father. Mm. And it's one of the few churches in Israel that can raise up that flag and say this sentence. In one sense, I'm proud of your father and so happy that God blessed me with something like that. And on the other hand, I'm sad that there are not too many churches in Israel that are lifting up this flag of expository preaching and understanding eschatology. Mm. Um, I can, I, it's not a vague statement. It's true. It's absolutely true. It's not exaggeration. To exaggerate is to lie. It is true. By the way, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that you now have a second church. That uh, Just quickly tell us about that real quick. Wow, praise God. We bought our place 10 years ago, and uh, really, we are full, full in the last few years. We needed to put some people on the, on the other hall watching the uh, service through screen. Uh, so we prayed, God, where do you want us to start a new church? And it was in Mevaseret, west of Jerusalem, toward Tel Aviv, about few families coming from there. One of the elders uh, is from there. So TB is heading the church mm. with other faithful people. Sixty souls are there in the beginning. The church bought for them a place, giving the salaries until they will tell us, enough, we have, you don't need to give to us. Wow. We love them. It's our part of the body. So yes, the church started officially September 17th in a forest, and that, but their uh, facility will be ready, I do believe, in a few months, and they'll be able to enter. It's a joy. It's a dream come true. How many times in your life you are part of starting a new church? <laughs> so it, it's a joy. It, it's simply jumping from the skin to the ceiling and falling again on a table. Um, thank God for that. So the believers are growing uh, a little bit at a time. And uh, 
the church is growing. What would you say would be the biggest obstacle facing believers in Israel at this point? Well, people think that persecution, that's the issue. But historically speaking, we know it is not. Persecution is the best thing for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know people don't like to hear it. But really, persecution trim and purify the church. The best, the, the worst enemy of the church really comes from within the church. Check also in the book of Acts chapter, um, I think, 20, when Paul is bringing all the elders and speak to them before he leaves, and he tells them, be careful that from you, wolves will come. And also in uh, Timothy, I think, uh, uh, 1 Timothy, where, or 2 Timothy, I don't remember exactly, and it says that also in the end times, um, it describes 19 characteristics of bad situations that will happen to believers. And it, it basically describe it in the end as those who used to be believers and now are not. Mm. So basically, our biggest enemies are false teachers and false believers inside the church. You think you built something, but it has no foundation. You think you have pillars, but when you build another floor, everything collapses. Um, Really, now I'll make it into a very simple world. Our biggest obstacle is that churches and pastors do not really teach the Bible as they should. I do believe pastors need to do a better job. Preach the word clean. Not just to speak about love, 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 love. Of course, love is important. But guys, there are doctrines how to live, how to do in situations. Some churches in Israel don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity. Some of them don't believe the Holy Spirit is a person. Some of them think that their identity is in Jewishness rather in Christ. Mm. All these things are basically an obstacle, obstacle for the younger generation that grew up, that grow up with a conflict of identity. Instead of teaching them from the time they are little eggs, listen, your identity is in Christ. Only Christ saves. Forget about all these bad traditions that simply just created roads to hell to many people. Look at God in all Christ. Pastors need all need to be united in that. And I'll be very honest, what causes the lack of growth as I wish would be, to come to, to precise say, it the bad bad doctrines and bad ministers inside the body. That's happening all over the world. And don't you think that was basically uh, told to us in the scriptures that in the last days, in the end times, that these things were going to take place? Yes, it is written, and I'll be very honest. Uh, I would not be surprised if all end time events will be before I die. Really, all the infrastructure is there. So it very well could be, and we see all what is written already exists. Now, the issue is to what intensity God is waiting. But all the seeds are already around around Mm -hmm. us. That is true. Again, this is Jerusalem Assembly House of Redemption, uh, JerusalemAssembly.com. You can go there, take a look at their website. 
maybe help them out. Uh, a lot of people are always asking us, can, you know, how can we help Israel? You want to know how to help Israel out? Pray for Israel, but help the body of believers. Those that are sharing the gospel, that is the best way to help a, a Jewish person is by giving them and sharing with them that Jesus is the true Messiah and that he died for their sins, went to the cross and rose again, just like he said he would. And, uh, and, and here is a group of believers. Here's a group of people that are teaching doctrine, uh, eschatology to help others grow and to become more Christ-like in their walk and to continue the, the growth of the body of believers in Israel until the rapture of the church takes place. Minnow, we're going to have to take a break. And when we come back, I want to ask you one more question. Uh, in the United States, and it's something that's on my heart, in the United States now, we are seeing a lot of people, and really around the world, we're seeing a lot of Christians get involved in the Jewish holidays. Now, we talked to Dave James about this. He gave a great answer. We even talked to Israel Madad about Christians getting involved in the Jewish holidays. But when we come back, I want to talk to you and ask you that question. Is it okay for Christians to be involved in the Jewish holidays? We'll get to that question right after we take this break. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Minnow, I want to ask you one more question, and I think it's a very important question. It's on my heart. It's been on my heart a lot lately. As I teach in churches, I come up against this all the time. What we have seen a lot lately is that people are taking on, Christians are taking on the Jewish holidays. 
they're participating and um, wanting to be a part of the Jewish holidays, actually doing the Jewish holidays. Can you uh, share with us, first of all, what do you do during the Jewish holidays? Who are the Jewish holidays for? What do you as the body of believers do there during the Jewish holidays? And, and what do you teach your people how to participate or to be a part of the holidays or the holy days as they come up? Well, thank you, Jimmy. Such a crucial um, question, and I thank you for that. It relates to a formal question you asked me. What are the obstacles for the body of Christ today? And I'll explain it. I just want to make sure that I'll explain it very clearly uh, so people will not be confused with the answer. It's wonderful, and it's great to celebrate and to remember Jewish holiday. Nothing is wrong with that. God gave it in the Bible. And remember that before Jesus came, people commanded celebrate this feast of the Lord, these appointed times of the Lord. That's what the Bible says in Leviticus 23, appointed times of the Lord. We were commanded to celebrate. But remember another thing. The holidays do not save a person. The holidays and kosher laws and Shabbat and all the others are shadow and symbols of Christ. Imagine that you see my shadow behind me. Yes, if I'll be before a white screen and the light in front of me, in my back you'll see my shadow. So the holidays, the feast of the Lord and so on, are the shadow of Christ. Christ is the body. That's Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 26, and chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. So God wanted to teach the people of Israel about their Savior, the time that is going to come the first time and the second time, basically through the holidays and other commandments, God is giving us the identity card, the passport details of Messiah. So when the Messiah will come, it will be easy. This is the thing. That's exactly the details. He is the Messiah. Now, what happened in generation? Jewishness, rabbinical Jewish, uh, Jews, took these symbols and shadows, let's call it the Lego, the Lego game, you know, Lego cubing mm -hmm. that's supposed to teach you about other things. They gave these Lego parts, these holidays, importance as if this is the body, this is Christ himself, as if their salvation is depend on how good they'll celebrate in if at all they will celebrate the holidays, as if they receive points in heaven doing so. And this is the danger. That's a critical danger. So celebrating the holidays, it's wonderful. But if you think that the shadow is the body, and you hug the body, and you want to die for the, for the shadow instead of the body, you miss the mouth. So I understand what happened uh, among many believers. They want to go back to the Jewish roots of the gospel. But their teachers, some of their teachers, are awful ones, are false teachers. And basically what in, later on it will come to be, that these guys will be hooked on the shadow rather than on the body, on mm. Christ himself. You see, me, 
I, 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 I bring a shadow to the screen, but if I move, there is no shadow. So what is more important? The body, Christ himself. Now, is it wrong for people to celebrate the holidays? No, we celebrate the holidays. But we never give the, give the holidays the emphasis as if this is the body. We always use it as evangelism to teach how it presents Christ Jesus himself. So, I understand pastors in America that they will come and say, you know, these people want to bring back rabbinical Judaism to the church. Uh, so sometimes they throw the baby with the dirty water, as we call it. <laughs> uh, there is a need for sensitivity. There is nothing wrong to celebrate Passover. Uh, nothing wrong in celebrating tabernacle. But please, please, brothers and sisters, please remember, this is the Lego cubic. This is the shadow. It's not the body. Please don't give it emphasis as if it saves you. It doesn't save you. It's fun to celebrate it. It's fun to teach the children about Christ through the shadow. But please remember, you do not marry a shadow. I have my wife's picture next to my pillow. It's her picture, you know. Mm-hmm. I when my wife is in the my, when my wife is in the room, I don't speak to the picture. And I'll tell you another <laughs> secret: our children did not come from the picture; it came from their mom. Mm. So I speak straightforward. I'm not politically correct because it's critically important. In the last few words that we have together, Menno, and I do thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule, and I do want to bring up as a prayer request, because you have a member of your uh, staff, um, one of the pillars of the church there, just share quickly about John's situation and uh, how we can pray for he and his family. Thank you. John Theodore, one of God's righteous kids, 53 years old. A person who is one of the elders in our church, a co-pastor with me, um, a heart for evangelism, helping the poor, evangelism through the media and through walking in the streets and giving tracts to everyone who wants, who was infected with COVID, is in the hospital, uh, connected to an ECMO machine. ECMO machine is the heart-lung machine, and the doctors are fighting for his life. We need a miracle, yes? Our father is in the miracle business. And we beg God, if it's his will, to heal John. Please, married to Alina and three kids in teenage, we beg God for mercy. Please. Mm. Menno, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll covet to pray with John and to uh, follow along and pray with you as the body of believers continue to grow in the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Amen. It's my joy. Thank you. I appreciate it. Very important information from Menno Kalashir, the pastor in Jerusalem, and we want to lift up his co-worker, his uh, co-elder in the church there. We want to lift him up in prayer. All of our broadcast partners today have presented information that help us to understand the times in which we're living. We are living in the last days. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.